Uh, in the beginning of the parts of animals, Aristotle teaches us that each of the various sciences has its own proper method. And that it's the mark of the educated man to know the method of each science. But besides their proper methods, all the sciences share a common method, a method of proceeding from the known to the unknown, which the human mind must follow in any subject if it is to achieve certain knowledge. But the nature of that method has often been a matter of dispute. Uh, Plato referred to that common method as a dialectic and displayed its use in his dialogues. Now, the main character in those dialogues is Socrates, who in real life uh, taught Plato that method. Now, the Socrates of the dialogues proceeds in philosophy by engaging someone in conversation and then asking that person a series of questions and drawing out the consequences of their answers. Now, his interlocutors are almost always surprised at the ultimate conclusion because it almost always contradicts their original opinion on the matter in question. Now, Aristotle himself was the student of Plato for 20 years, but ultimately he did not think that dialectic by itself was the common method of the philosophical sciences. And he seems to explain why in this passage from his book on sophistical refutations. Accordingly, no art that is a method of showing the nature of anything proceeds by asking questions. For it does not permit a man to grant whichever he likes of two alternatives in the question. Now, clearly, Aristotle does not think that dialectic is a sufficient method for reaching the truth in a philosophical science. So he searched for and discovered a more certain method, a method which we now call generally logic and which Aristotle teaches in the collection of books called the Organon. Now, the principal book of that collection, that to which the previous books are ordered, is his analytics, prior and posterior. At the beginning of the former, Aristotle contrasts the method taught by Plato, dialectic, with his own method, which he names demonstration. He writes, The demonstrator does not ask for his premise, but lays it down. Whereas the dialectical premise depends upon the interlocutor's choice between two contradictories. But this will make no difference in the production of the syllogism in either case. So in Aristotle's view, dialectic and demonstration are opposed to each other by a crucial difference. Although they share the use of the syllogism, which Aristotle defined as discourse in which certain things being stated, something else necessarily follows because of them. 
dialectic and demonstration differ in how they obtain those things stated. The demonstrator lays them down as the true first principles of his science and as sources of sure knowledge. The dialectician asks a question called the dialectical proposition and then accepts the answer given by his interlocutor as the premise of his reasoning. Uh, We see examples of these in uh, uh, works that uh, uh, even the freshmen read at the the beginning of the year. Uh, So uh, Euclid is a demonstrator and he lays down his definitions, common notions, and postulates. He doesn't ask the student whether the student uh, assents to those. On the other hand, when you read the dialogues of Plato, uh, the Mino is is a great example. Uh, uh, Socrates in the dialogue proceeds by asking Mino questions and then drawing out the conclusions that follow from Mino's answers to those questions. Now, we might expect then that Aristotle, since he's discovered and teaches a better method, namely demonstration, would have left dialectic entirely aside. After all, as he said before, no art which aims at truth would permit the student to choose whichever he likes of two contradictory statements as first principles. But in fact, as is often the case, Aristotle is full of surprises. Uh, He writes a whole book called The Topics, which teaches the dialectical method. And that book is almost as long as the prior and posterior analytics put together. And in that book, he argues that dialectic is useful precisely because it's an aid to the study of the philosophical sciences. St. Thomas Aquinas, as well, places a high value on the dialectical method. He asserts that the dialectical syllogism produces an opinion Uh, an assent to the conclusion as true, although it does not produce the certain knowledge of the conclusion the demonstration does. And St. Thomas believes that it's reasonable to assent to the conclusion of a dialectical syllogism because that conclusion follows necessarily from its premises, and the premises themselves are Probable. Probable is the word St. Thomas uses. But if the premises of the dialectical syllogism are really just answers to questions, why would St. Thomas think that they are probable? And if the conclusion depends upon those answers, how could we reasonably assent to the conclusion as true? even if our assent is not certain but is accompanied by hesitation. 
In defending dialectic, Aristotle and St. Thomas might seem to us to be kind of defending a, what, they th- what, what, what they should think of as a parlor trip, trick whereby quick-witted people gain the unwitting agreement of the less clever. Dialectic doesn't seem worthy of being called a philosophical method, despite its acceptance by Aristotle and St. Thomas. So what I want to argue today, first, is that St. Thomas, following Aristotle and the philosophical tradition, including St. Albert, was right to call the premises of the dialectical syllogism probable. I want to show that although these premises are not known with certainty and are answers to questions, they are nevertheless likely to be true. Then I want to dig a little deeper and investigate why we come to agree to these premises whose truth we do not see. In doing so, I I hope to see why St. Thomas says that the premises of dialectical syllogisms are in some way taken from logic. But before we can defend the value of dialectic in this way, we need to see how Aristotle distinguishes two kinds of questions in dialectic, the dialectical problem and the dialectical proposition. We're okay so far? (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, So, I want to talk about the dialectical problem and the dialectical proposition. Aristotle begins his discussion, discussion by pointing out that both the dialectical problem and the dialectical proposition are questions. But they're questions of different kinds and they're asked in different ways. The dialectical proposition is asked in this way. Isn't it good to do good for one's friends? But the dialectical problem is asked in this way. Is pleasure worthy of choice or not? The former question is asked in such a way that it invites a particular definite answer, an affirmation that it is good to do good for one's friends. But the latter question is asked in such a way that invites either side of the contradiction, namely, the pleasure is worthy of choice or the pleasure is not worthy of choice. So the very form of the first question invites just one answer, while the form of the latter is open to opposite responses. And Aristotle's definitions of the dialectical problem and the dialectical proposition keep that difference in mind. The dialectical problem is the subject of the dialectical inquiry. That is, it's the subject of disagreement, or at least it's a subject about which there's no settled opinion. 
The dialectical problem is the question which the series of dialectical syllogisms hopes to answer. In contrast, the dialectical proposition expects a particular answer because it asks for something that is held by all or most men, or at least by the wise, and then of the wise, all or most of them, or the most, uh, and the, lot, the Greek word that uh, Aristotle uses is endoxos of the wise, those held in highest repute. So, uh, by the way, we should re- immediately note that if there's a dis- disagreement between the common man and the wise man, then the question about that is not a dialectical proposition. It's a dialectical problem. So what we see here is that the dialectician asks the dialectical proposition, that is, asks a question in order to secure a premise, not because he wants to elicit the peculiar opinions of his particular interlocutor, but rather because he wants to secure his interlocutor's assent to a statement that just about everybody agrees to. It is the answer to this question that St. Thomas calls the probable premise. Uh, I can think, uh, if I go back to the Mino, uh, Mino asks, uh, begins the dialogue by asking the question, uh, is virtue teachable or not? And that's definitely a dialectical problem. That's the subject of dispute. That's what people disagree about. Uh, that's what the, uh, uh, the, the, the forthcoming dialectical inquiry is trying to answer. That's the question it's trying to answer. Uh, but uh, in the course of trying to answer that question, Socrates uh, will ask a question such as uh, if a man and a woman are strong, they're strong in the same way, are they not? And then Mino will say, yes, the man and woman are strong in the same way. And that's a dialectical proposition. Socrates is asking that question not because he wants to elicit Mino's peculiar opinions, but because he, he thinks that Mino is going to agree to a certain answer because it's what almost anyone would agree to. Okay. The answer, then, is what St. Thomas calls, the answer to the dialectical proposition, then, is what St. Thomas calls the probable premise. <clears throat> okay. Now, we're going to have a slight difficulty about the word probable. In English, the, f- the word probable first means likely to be true or more likely to happen than not. And so we say that statistics deals with probabilities. If you flip a coin, the probability of its coming up heads is 50%. Uh, given that notion of probable, 
it doesn't seem that there's immediate connection, an immediate connection between the word probable and the answer to a dialectical proposition. But if we look at the Latin word probabilis, its first meaning is different from the first meaning of the English word. The Latin word probabilis is rooted in the verb probare, to approve or commend. Thus, for the Latin speaker, the first meaning of the word probable would be the approvable, the acceptable. And the Greek word translated by the Latins as probable bears this out. The word that Aristotle uses to describe the premises of the dialectical syllogism in their distinction from the premises of demonstration is endoxon, which can be rendered of high repute or held in esteem. The Oxford translation of the topics renders this word uh, with the phrase generally accepted. So I think this uh, consideration of the word makes it easier to see the connection between the answer to the dialectical proposition and probability. The dialectical proposition, in contrast to the dialectical problem, is a question which expects a particular answer. It's able to expect this answer because it asks for an answer that the dialectician already knows is held by all or most men, or at least the wise. Since the answer is already approved or acceptable, to all or through most or to the wise, it deserves the Latin name probable and the Greek name endoxon. Now, uh, let's see. As I read the sentence, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but that's okay. When Aristotle distinguishes dialectic from demonstration, he uses the word endoxon uh, to separate the dialectical premise from the demonstrative premise. Now, the premises of demonstration are true and primary and are believed, Aristotle says, not on the strength of anything else, but of themselves. Another way of putting it is to say that these premises are self-evident. In contrast, the dialectical premise is only probable, and that means that it is accepted but not in virtue of being self-evident, but in virtue of being held by all, most of the wise. So Aristotle hasn't yet made that connection between accepted and likely to be true that we tend to associate with the word probable. But uh, a, a scholar of Aristotle, uh, Ivan Pelletier, the author of a book called La Dialectique Aristotelian, yeah, there's my French, provides us with a middle term. He points out that things which are so always are for the most part are things that are in, in accord with natural inclination. For example, 
that most men live in villages or cities shows that the political life is not entirely artificial but arises from a strong natural inclination in man. Likewise, the assent that most men give to the probable statements to probable statements must arise from the natural inclination of the human intellect. But the human intellect has truth for its object. And so, the fact that all or most men affirm these statements is a strong, though not infallible, sign that these statements are true. So, the probable statements that are the answers to dialectical propositions and are the premises of the dialectical syllogism are statements that are not known to be true, but are not only accepted, but are likely to be true. And St. Albert affirms the connection between the probable and the likely in his commentary on the topics when he says, the probable things from which the dialectical syllogism is made are likely things. So, the dialectician is not playing a parlor game. He's not trying to elicit the peculiar opinions of his chance interlocutor. Rather, he is securing his interlocutor's assent to what is held by all or most because that is likely to be true. Truth and probability do have a connection. Okay, so, so far, we've already seen that the probable statements function in dialectic in a manner parallel to the way self-evident first principles function in demonstration. Both are accepted immediately without needing to be reasoned to, without requiring a syllogism, without requiring a middle term. But we have to ask ourselves, how can a statement be immediately acceptable to the intellect when it's not self-evident? Okay. To answer this question, I think it will be helpful to examine what makes a statement self-evident. Now, St. Thomas in many places describes the various properties of the self-evident statement. It is known immediately without the agency of a middle term. It is assented to as soon as its terms are understood, and it is assented to when the terms are understood by necessity. But behind these properties is the cause of self-evidence. St. Thomas says a statement is self-evident when its predicate is in or from the very ratio of its subject. For example... It is self-evident that all right triangles, oh, sorry, all right angles are equal, because being equal to other right angles belongs to the very nature of the right angle. Similarly, it belongs to the very nature of the whole 
that it is greater than its part. But the probable statement is not self-evident. So, its predicate does not belong to the very ratio of its subject, or at least we, we can say this, that the intellect doesn't see yet that the predicate belongs to the very ratio of the subject. Yet, the probable statement is accepted immediately, so there must be something about the conceptions of the predicate and subject in the probable statement that inclines the intellect to join them. That something is what St. Thomas is pointing to when he says that the probable statement is taken in some way from logical intentions. In his commentary on the posterior analytics, St. Thomas notes that logic, first philosophy, and dialectic all proceed from common principles, but in different ways. First philosophy proceeds from common principles because its subject matter is being in common. Logic and dialectic, however, proceed from common principles because both proceed from the intentions of reason, that is, from logical intentions, which are common to all beings insofar as all beings are knowable. About dialectic in particular, he writes, dialectic does this because the dialectician proceeds by arguing from common intentions toward those things which belong to the other sciences, whether those things are proper or common, although most to the common. Uh, When he he talks about uh, common intentions here, I, I think from the context, he's meaning logical intentions. And when he talks about the other sciences, proper and common, he's referring to the proper as, as, as the particular uh, the things that concern the particular sciences and common those which concern metaphysics uh, or first philosophy. And uh, he's pointing out that dialectic is um, most concerned with the issues that are dealt with in first philosophy. So the common intentions from which the dialectician proceeds are logical intentions Oh, I guess I just said that. Well, the proper common things toward which it proceeds are the matters of the sciences, particular or metaphysical. In a passage from the commentary on the physics, however, St. Thomas makes it clear that logic and dialectic proceed from logical intentions in different ways. Logic is about logical intentions, and so the names of the logical intentions are themselves the terms in the syllogisms that the logician makes in his own science. That is, logic not only proceeds from the notions of genus and species, it uses the names genus and species as terms in its premises and conclusions. Now, in contrast, dialectic does not use those names as terms in its syllogisms. Rather, the terms that it uses in the syllogisms belong to the particular subject matter of the particular science that's being, that's being discussed. And that fact leads to the following question. How can dialectic be said to proceed from logical intentions 
if it does not use the terms of logic in its reasonings. Now, St. Thomas provides us with an example of how this happens. So he gives the following as an example of a dialectical syllogism. Uh, I've kind of spelled it out a little more than he he has, uh, but it's, I, I think, essentially the same. First premise is that love is in the concupiscible appetite. The second premise is that hate is in what love is in. The conclusion is that hate is in the concupiscible appetite. Uh, If this were really a dialectical exchange, those two premises would have been elicited by a dialectical proposition, a question such as, well, isn't love in the concupiscible appetite, and isn't hate in the same thing that love is in? And then you draw the conclusion, so hate is in the concupiscible appetite. Now, then St. Thomas gives the reason that he thinks underlies the assertion that love and hate are in the same thing. And this is what he says, briefly. From this, that contraries are in the same thing. Now, we should notice that this statement about contraries is not a premise in the syllogism he's just given. We should also notice that the term contrary is not a term in the reasoning that he's in the in the in the syllogism that he's just given. But the other thing to notice is that it's not it's also not true that the conclusion that 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 sorry it's not it's also not true that the premise hate is in the same thing that love is in is a conclusion of a previous syllogism which has the statement about contraries as one of its premises it can't be because in fact you have four terms if if you spell it all out you have four terms and the syllogism needs to have three terms. Rather, the statement about contraries is a more universal statement of which the statement about love and hate is a particular application. Such a statement has in dialectic the character of a common notion or an axiom. The statement about love and hate is affirmed in the light of a statement about contraries because it's seen as an instance of contraries, love and hate being instances of of corresponding contraries. Uh, So that statement, contraries are in the same subject, is analogous, I think, to something like uh, the whole is greater than the part in geometry. I don't think you'll find Euclid using that statement as a a premise in a syllogism. That statement instead is always used insofar as it illuminates a particular particular premise that 
Euclid actually uses. So Euclid will not say the whole is greater than the part. What he'll say is that uh, the triangle ABC is greater than the triangle ABD, the relationship of whole and part being manifest, if, if I had the figure on the board, I suppose. So the, the, the statement about contraries is not a premise in a dialectical syllogism, nor does it lead to a nor does nor does nor how would I put this nor is a premise in a dialectical syllogism a conclusion that uh, comes from a syllogism with that statement as its premise. Rather, uh, the premise of the dialectical syllogism is affirmed insofar as it fits with that statement. <clears throat> this analysis that St. Thomas gives us invites me to take a further step, a step that at least I haven't found explicitly in Aristotle or St. Thomas, but a step which I think fits with what they're saying. The intellect is moved to affirm probable statements not because it sees that the predicate belongs to the very ratio nature of the subject, but because the logical relation of the predicate with the subject strongly suggests the truth of that statement. The subject and predicate of a statement name two natures, and logical intentions belong to such natures. But the logical intentions don't belong to the natures as something intrinsic to the natures. Rather, they belong to those natures only insofar as those natures are known. For example, the genus of man belongs to the nature animal. So I'm, I'm taking genus of man as, 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 a, as a phrase, a unified phrase. The genus of man belongs to the nature of animal, but not as such. Rather, it belongs to animal insofar as animal is known. Similarly, being the contrary of hate does not belong to love as such, but results from our way of understanding love, in which we conceive of love as belonging to a genus and being related to a number, another member of that genus in a particular way. And because we conceive of love and hate as contraries, we conceive of them as belonging to the same subject. And because we conceive of them as belonging to the same subject, we we are inclined to infer sorry we are we are inclined to affirm that in reality also they are in the same subject uh, another way i think of looking at the same thing is is to compare uh demonstration and dialectic with respect to uh, their, uh, uh, the descriptions that uh, Aristotle gives of the premises in both. Uh, we're leaving aside induction versus self-evident. 
What we're looking at now are the, the properties where the, dial, the, the premises of demonstration are necessary, true in every instance, per se, and commensurately universal. What I want to note is that the demonstrator does not attend to these properties beforehand. That is, I don't think it's necessary that Euclid or the student of Euclid who's doing the demonstration and understands how the demonstration works, where he's arguing that a triangle has angles equal to two right angles, is labeling the premises necessary, true in every instance, per se, commensurately universal. Rather, the demonstrator, Euclid or the student, understanding the natures of the subjects, subject and predicate themselves, has his mind moved to assent to the conclusion. Maybe immediately in the case of a self-evident principle, but in, in the case of this, through, through middle terms. Now later, the demonstrator may go back and reflect, what have I done? And, and, and realize to himself that, hey, these premises from which I've reasoned to this conclusion are necessary, true in every instance, per se, commensurately universal. But he doesn't use that as a way of getting his discourse going. This is not true about dialectic. In dialectic, uh, 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 the dialectician, or sorry, in, in, in uh, sorry, Aristotle in the topics divides the premises not according to uh, necessary true in every instance per se, et cetera, or, or sorry, describes the premises, not in those terms, but rather the dialectician uh, classifies his premises according to whether they assert that the predicate belongs to the subject as a definition, or as a genus, or as a property, or as an accident. And Aristotle instructs the dialectician to attend from the very beginning to that mode of predication. So for example, if uh, the dialectician uh, asks, is anger a desire for vengeance. Arist and, and his interlocutor agrees to that. Aristotle's instructing a dialectician to pay attention to whether his interlocutor is agreeing to that desire for vengeance as a definition, genus, property, or accident of, the, uh, of, of anger. <clears throat> so, the dialectician is from the very beginning attending to the way of speaking about the natures, and he's reasoning from that way of speaking about the natures to... Uh, an affirmation or denial of, of, a, of a statement about those natures. Now, this is true even though 
the dialectician uh, is dealing with an imperfect conception of these natures. These natures, for example, the nature of anger, uh, desire for vengeance, if I were to actually say that anger, uh, sorry, uh, the definition of anger was the desire for vengeance, that would be an imperfect understanding of anger. A perfect understanding requires that you see anger having a component of bodily passion to it. Now, although anger has been imperfectly conceived, it still enters into logical relations. And so the dialectician can use the logical relations which determine the way in which we speak about anger in order to elicit certain answers from his interlocutor in order to secure his interlocutor's assent to the premises of his syllogism. So, another, uh, here, here, here's another way, I think, of, of, of saying the same thing. The, oh, no, this is something different. <laughs> I've, uh, I've got my pages out of order, and now I'm, uh, now I'm out of order here. <clears throat> uh, so, I think then maybe this is this is uh, trying to reach the final step to my conclusion. The logical relation we should note does not only arise from the way of understanding the natures. Sorry, I should say it this way: the logical relation does not arise only from the way of understanding. It also Arise, it, it rather arises from the way of understanding these real natures. Thus, the logical relation is a sign, not always infallible, of some truth about the natures. In sum, because the logical relation arises partly from the nature of the thing, the statement to which the logical relation inclines us is likely to be true. But because it also arises from the mode of understanding, we cannot affirm it with certainty. So these opinions, which are like first principles in a dialectical discourse, are both probable and likely. So let me gather together the strands of this inquiry. Our problem was that, that dialectic receives the premises from which it reasons as answers to questions rather than laying them down as true. At first, that seems to imply that the dialectician uh, was reliant on the peculiar opinions of his chance interlocutor. And this, in turn, seemed to imply that dialectic had no relation to truth. What I've been arguing, however, is that 
the questions that the dialectician asks are ordered to eliciting from the interlocutor not his peculiar opinions, but the opinions that he shares with all or most men. This is what makes the answers to the questions probable. And further, we saw that though their source is in logical relations, those statements are not only probable, but also likely to be true. I should have said through their source in logical relations. Those statements are not only probable, but also likely to be true. And so both probability and truth are in some way found in the dialectical proposition. And that's all. <laughs>